Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. How's everybody doing? Doing great. Uh, So for over a decade now, one of my biggest political influences has been the work of Peter Joseph, founder of the Zeitgeist Movement, author of the book, The New Human Rights Movement, and of course, filmmaker. Most recently, his epic mixed genre film titled Inner Reflections. I was able to be at the LA premiere of Inner Reflections, and needless to say, it was a pretty profound and powerful experience just to be there. Uh, Now, Peter has started a weekly podcast series called Revolution Now that I think is absolutely stellar. Definitely encourage everyone to check out and subscribe. Peter, we are so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely, Abby. I appreciate you and Robbie having me on. I think this is my first time actually communicating with Robbie. Yeah. So nice to meet you there, Robbie. <laughs> it is, Peter. Yeah, good Good to finally be able to talk to you. And Abby, don't insult me by saying I'm a political influence. Let's <laughs> <laughs> remember that poli- politics is, uh, is an old Greek concept that was lost long ago. We're in a completely different realm. So anyway. Well, let's just say influence in general. Thank you. Good, good influence. That. And likewise, so, likewise. <laughs> thanks, man. So before we get to your film, of course, I, let, let's go back a little bit, Peter, for people who don't know how you started. Um, what you were doing before you created the Zeitgeist Trilogy. I mean, you were knee deep in the world of financialization. I guess just briefly talk about how you became disillusioned with capitalism doing this type of work. So it's two-pronged. I was in New York City working in advertising, so I went to school as a classical musician, dropped out when I went into too, into too much debt, and then I had to do whatever anybody, excuse me, do what everybody else does in the arts when you're in that kind of environment. You move into the advertising world, which is unfortunately where a lot of artists uh, end up, depending on how they, you know, derail their normal careers. So that's what I started doing. Then I realized how much I despised that. So working at a, you know, a high-end real estate advertising agency, doing green screen composites, putting people into, you know, fake rich apartments. And then these apartments, you know, you'd pay like $30,000 in, um, in, um, in fees just to live there. You know, these incredible, just outrageous social inequality, uh, which is my exposure uh, right when I got out of school in that environment. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this. I'm going to do something that can get me off the grid of this hierarchical labor system. So that's when I came into trading. So I studied with some Wall Street traders to do short-term equity trading from my own accounts, tried to build up enough capital to do that. And for a number of years, I did okay, but I just never had enough money to really, really secure it, which is probably a good thing in the long run, or I'd probably probably be on a completely different trajectory now. But in the midst of that, getting up in the morning, trading for my own account, going to work for another eight hours and coming back and then dealing with my musical interests. These are my every day I did this. Is, I don't even know how I did it, frankly, but I worked you know, 15 hours a day for so long in this spectrum. And I made a film called Zeitgeist. And that's how I started this whole trajectory. I won't go on that. Uh, but long story short, between advertising and Wall Street, you're dealing with two of the most corrupt and, excuse me, corrosive institutions, I think, on the face of the earth. You have advertising, which is there to manipulate people into buying things to support a infinite growth consumption economy. And you have Wall Street, which is this ultimate proxy reality or disreality kind of a proxy um, universe, if you will, where this incredible gambling institution based on abstract relationships that have no true bearing to true production economically has had such amazing influence on the world, causing the periodic instability that we see and on and on and on. So in terms of market economics and how I kind of got into that criticism ultimately, which is where my, my niche is, that's as far as I'm concerned markets are the root of the problem out there. It's not human nature. It's not people's um, 
gravitation towards corruption or groupism or racism or anything. You have this fundamentally antagonistic system in our economy that is creating sick social psychology across the board. And as far as my activism, that is all I concern myself with today. So as a, as a political activist, not so much as more of an economic activist, because once you realize that economy is at the base of everything, uh, you start to get your priorities in order. So I'll stop there. Peter, I'm curious uh, what the scene looked like uh, when you were still in that sector in the United States, because now, I mean, things have obviously gotten so crazy. I'm sure that it's probably looks much different now, but I'm just wondering what was one of the last things that you saw sort of being implemented in sort of the Wall Street sector that was new technology or sort of like a cutting edge thing? Because we hear a lot about high frequency trading and now they have like fiber optic, you know, internet to be able to get the fastest speeds possible to be able to get the edge. But was there any other things that were happening around that time um, that you were sort of like, oh, here's here's this, this is going to be crazy, or like anything like that come to mind? Well, the environment I was in, oddly enough, were not really people that had malicious intent or absolute apathy, first of all. These were kind of people like me at the time. They were artists and people that had been in the business world that were simply looking for an escape. So my environment in the Wall Street community, I say Wall Street as a symbol. I, I literally didn't go to Wall Street, even though I studied with people that did literally go to Wall Street, was that, you know, this is more of a game that people sat around and played through through a visual kind of processing. In terms of things like derivatives, yeah, we were all aware of what was happening with the ongoing building of derivatives that eventually, you know, crash things and, and the housing bubble. And yes, as far as the high frequency trading stuff, that really wasn't my realm. But of course, I've learned a lot about that over the years. And those trades that you see on Wall Street, or I should say the entire financial system are done automatically. Uh, and ultimately, it's it's an inflationary driven uh I'm trying to, I don't want to deviate too far here about how to describe this. First of all, to answer your question, there's nothing in particular that stands out that I could tell you. It's just the same evolution of making more proxy instruments upon proxy instruments. Then you have trillions of dollars in derivatives. It's completely irrational and insane. Coupled with ultimately 83%, it's, it's an arranging percentage, by the way, it's between 83 and 95%. Uh, of the stocks are owned by 5% to 10% of the population, depending on what year you source that. Right now, it's about 80, uh, I think it's about 83% owned by 10%, but that's going to probably slim down again as the economy ebbs and flows. A point being, of course, is that this is mostly a money-making machine for the rich. And in my prior podcast, I did point out, and I think this is an, an important thing to note, because what do we have? We have a, a president that has banked his entire economy ultimately on the rise of the stock market and artificially fueling it as such through mass liquidation injection injections through all of these uh, crisis bills. And the um, the ultimate scam here comes down to the retirement. And that's where, you know, it, people have been roped into this terrible machine to think that this is where their retirement's going to come from under the ruse, ultimately, that the population keeps rising and more money is made to service that population, coupled with the ultimate expansion of capital, which is constant, never-ending, and suddenly the market goes up. It goes up because it always goes up because there's more money in the system and there's population increases. So that simple mechanism is what locked people in and now people have confidence in this system. Wall Street, to me, is the greatest ab ab abomination in the context of markets because it's gone berserk. It's, a, it's symbolic widgets now that have completely decoupled from anything that's real. 
And unfortunately, it's going to get worse and worse, I think. We've, commodif- we've excuse me, commodified and financialized, I'd say you could put those two together, you've financially commodified so much in the existing reality. There's a book that I was recently going back through. Um, I apologize. It's about the marketization of life. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it right now. My memory is getting worse these days. But anyway, it's a really brilliant book that just describes what's happened over the past 20 years where people have marketized everything. You've got people putting tattoos of Nike on their forehead. You've got this, you know, really the evolution of advertising and how it's worked to commodify society, even mentalities is so is so sick and, and so distorted. But I'm, I'm deviating from uh, the financialization point. In other words, financialization is marketization, but in a different path. You know, you just basically financialize everything. And, I, and as I pointed out in my last podcast, uh, one of the more unique things about uh, the history of slavery that no one talks about is that while Europe did abolish slavery, of course, before the U.S., abject slavery in the 17th, 18th century, um, the, they continued to trade the slave bonds. People in Europe were using legal proxies to trade with collateral of, of black slaves and all sorts of other financial instruments. And that blew my mind when I finally you know, came to terms with just how insidious this proxy representation system is, literally profiting off of slavery by proxy, which is you know, very dark. That was the first bond market, believe it or not, in America. The very first official bond market in the United States was slave-backed bonds. So That's anyway. fascinating. You mentioned, of course, that the market system is the root of really all of the problems that are the most dire right now. Needless to say, we live in pretty dire times, especially ecologically. But I think there's something to be said about the popular rejection of capitalism right now, the appeal to alternative systems like socialism. You reject adherence to any ideological ism, but talk in terms of more structuralism, science-based methodology, um, can you just explain the most obvious contradictions to sustainability and survivability on our current yeah. economic system and why you base so much of your, basically all of your recent work on the urgency to replace it? So I'll start by saying that there's an evolution here. And if you go back to you know the Neolithic revolution long, long ago, <clears throat> and you move from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural settled societies. There was a certain geographical determinism and an inferential logic of how a settled agrarian society would begin to work and to perfect itself. And naturally, you have to begin to specialize labor in that circumstance because there's more variability occurring. So you have somebody that's going to tend to the farm, someone's going to maybe sow some clothes, and you begin to see the kernel seeds of specialized labor, which is, of course, the, the ultimate ground of the market economy. And so communities start to trade within themselves, then they start to bridge with other communities, and slowly the market network unfolds. And it seems perfectly natural. It seems, in fact, I don't think it could have happened any other way, uh, given the, the determinism that happened geographically when this shift was made and the, and the advent of technology began to emerge. It seemed perfectly rational. But in that circumstance, you have demand that is clearly based on true scarcity. So you have true necessities of food and shelter, and you get people to perform functions, obviously, to fulfill those needs. We'll jump ahead, you know, thousands of years upon the, uh, excuse me, the uh, industrial revolution, and suddenly automation of labor, the advent of technology, the kernel seeds of really what will eventually be a completely automated economy in time, mark my words, maybe not in our lifetime, but it's certainly on its way and it should be pushed forward as rapidly as possible, but that's for another conversation. And suddenly you have a new reality in the, in the industrial revolution where corporations literally have on the books, I even have news clippings and writings and books and magazine articles, 
where these CEOs were starting to see a, a reduction of demand because of the fact that they were producing more of a surplus with all this efficient technology. So what happened? Edward Bernays comes in. The CEOs start to declare myopically that we have to create advertising that appeals to create new wants. And this entire evolution occurred, which I've talked about at length. It's in my book and films and so on, so I'm not going to belabor it. But basically, an artificial construct had to be created to artificially create demand through the imposition of false scarcity. And you can define false scarcity in a lot of different ways. It can be from the fact that it's, it's the exploitative process where you literally are selling something to somebody saying that this is the only place they can get it and these components. Uh, ultimately are only in the property of this corporation. Therefore, Apple can, you know, release something and sell it for an incredible amount. And then they can go back later and make it more efficient after they've made so much money to begin with. So false scarcity has a lot of different qualities. You could also say wants or false scarcity. If you have a, if you know we're social, we are social beings, an enormous amount of psychological research and anthropological research and neurochemistry is research, neuro, <clears throat> excuse me, cognitive neuroscience, uh, this research has shown that we are deeply social and malleable to social circumstances. So advertising creates this imposition where it creates artificial wants through social manipulation. And so suddenly, and going back to this point of the difference, suddenly you have an entire economy that needs people to buy and consume, as opposed to many thousands of years ago where there was truly an economy where people met needs as opposed to creating artificial ones and so on. So do you see that evolution difference? So it started out seemingly logical. Now we're in a different place. And it goes to show that this is not going to work from an ecological standpoint. You can't have an economy that does that. No one does that in their normal home, of course. You don't go in your refrigerator to eat everything at once. And then, you know, just so you can go out and buy some more stuff, that doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly what the economy does on the holistic level, because it needs to create more demand, to create more jobs, to get more purchasing power to more people, to continue buying back into it. And that literally is all anyone needs to ponder when it comes to the unsustainable nature of the economy. That's, that's all you need to know from a system level, a system science perspective, ultimately. It's called a positive feedback loop. And the only thing you can do in that to try and you know, stop the damage that the system's creating, constantly creating artificial demand, constantly promoting artificial scarcity, constantly undermining people's confidence and their sociality to force them to feel like they have to f find inclusion so they buy more and more, constantly looking at, obviously not costly, but just structurally looking at the Earth's resources as an inventory. A dead tree is far more valuable than a living tree in the short-term logic of this system and so on. So... That's all anyone needs to understand if you really think about that cyclical consumption pattern. So I'll, I'll stop there, but there's you know, a lot more that can be said in terms of inequality about the market system. But the ecological crisis, to me, is the broadest and most important because it's, that's those, those are the walls closing in. You, know, you can talk about all the corruption in government. You can talk about the, the terrible inhumanity and the injustices out there across the board on multiple levels. But the ecological issue is what will really take us down in the end. Right. And this is why the notion of sustainable or, you know, conscious capitalism is just so contradictory. It, it doesn't make any sense because you just look at like corporate boards and how they consider it a failure if you're not actually like doubling or tripling your profits every year. It's like you can't maintain the same profit structure and, and be considered a success. How do you factor that into sustainability in the long term? We, we understand how how devastating, you know, the environmental crises that we face are. So it's completely bizarre and absurd that we're even still like arguing about this, given the environmental catastrophes ahead. I would, I say, I consider it a form of denial. I think because once you're presented with that fact and you realize just how um, inherently <clears throat> out of balance and 
excuse me, structurally distorted and out of harmony with nature, the system really is by its design. I think people literally have a cognitive uh, blinkering. I, I think there's so many activists, for example, that talk a good game and they're, they're writing great books and they're being you know, ecologically aware and they're talking about the flaws of this and that, but yet they still succumb to this idea that we can regulate the system going against the grain and trying to push the river back. That's my always, that's always my analogy. It's like a guy with a big piece of cardboard standing in the middle of a river and they're trying to push the whole river back, but the river is the flow of the logic of the system. I mean, it's like FDR. He, he was the only one in the modern reality, excuse me, in the modern Western society to actually put forward things that went against the grain of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And it has taken a while, but you're starting to see that becoming eroded. It's been, I mean, it's been attacked ever since. I mean, the market-based, you know, interests, libertarian interests have always seen this as an issue for some reason, when if you actually took away these safety nets, I mean, it would be a complete catastrophe, especially for older people. So anyway, you can't go yeah. against the grain in the system anymore. You have to, you have to change the system. It's not going to work. I think it's going to get much worse. In other words, like all the attempts that we've made through policy to change and, and stifle this system, I think the rise of authoritarianism and the fascistic re-representation that's starting to emerge on this planet as the walls close in ec ecologically, it's, it, I, I don't see much compromise um, occurring in terms of this sort of attendant balance between regulation and the natural uh, characteristics of the capitalist system. Regulation is going to continue to fail and more rapidly, I think. Right. And, that, and, and all of the measures that you're talking about that FDR put into place, yeah, of course, it was like the main point of the right wing and the Reagan era to basically right. roll all of those back. And Bernie Sanders is considered this you know, heroic figure for essentially wanting to like reinstall some of these policies that were in place a hundred <laughs> years ago. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> surreal that this is where we're at. But you mentioned libertarianism and just really, really briefly before we go on, because uh, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I mean, any potential libertarian listeners to Media Roots Radio, what would you say to them as well as just most conservatives who reject government or big government, quote unquote, as the problem? I would say step back and, and diffuse the ideas that you formed. What is the state? What is government? If you think about what government actually is, it's not a fixed institution. It's an attempt at social management, right? That's It's an attempt at ultimately democracy in most governments. You want to have some kind of level of participation in the public will, and it manifests itself, I'm speaking technically, theoretically, I should say, and it goes to government and government acts on behalf of the general interests of the population. That's what government's supposed to be. Unfortunately, the Reagan-Thatcher reality uh, took this spin that has really stuck to say that the market is the perfect system. It is perfectly self-regulating. It doesn't need any help, and anything that tries to manage it or regulate it is going to just hurt it even more and hence harm the liberty and, and justice of everyone. So from a system science perspective, the system <clears throat> is not self-regulating. It is not what you'd call a viable system, which is defined as a system that can take account of everything that comes its way. So, you know, systems of nature, ecosystems have been around for so long, they know how it, excuse me, they know how to adapt mm -hmm. to the general changes, at least they used to until humans came along and have completely disturbed it. But a viable system is one that needs no regulation. The market is not that. The market has to have regulation because you'd have all these market externalities like homelessness and pollution that would never ever be resolved because you can't make money off of those types of problems. 
So that's just the first thing I'd say. Forget the isms, forget the political and historical debate. Take a system science perspective and ask yourself how the market economy can possibly exist on its own, because pure libertarianism, that's what it assumes. That's that's the, at least the modern libertarianism. You know, we could talk about historical libertarianism, which used to be actually more liberal and more left-leaning, but what it came to today is much more right-wing and much more anti-state. So that's that. And then there's the general philosophical grounding, which I find extremely dubious. You know, libertarians of the free market breed talk about voluntarism, and I'll, I'll just complete with this. How is a system that coerces you to get a, get a job in a corporate structure that's hierarchical, where you have no power, how is that voluntary? How, how can we call that liberty when the system itself is coercing the population to conform to the system's economic demands, which is labor for income, which is coercive by total system design? So I ask anyone out there talking about the non-aggression principle and all these buzzword terms in libertarianism, how do they, how do they answer those questions? And I tend to find that they can't because it's a myopic way of thinking about the market economy and making up excuses, unfortunately, that the markets are fine. It represents freedom and liberty. It's just a problem with human morality and a problem with this regulatory institution called the state. Uh, the, the funniest thing is, frankly, is the politicians and the economists underlying them, like Reagan and Thatcher, they've literally convinced people of the greatest lie that they have no democracy and that the only democracy really is markets. That's, that's the only <laughs> democracy. That, that, and it's incredible because you know what that does? If people have that value system by default, they are supporting the wealthy upper class. They are basically admitting, excuse me, not admitting, they're basically allowing for the vast inequality uh, and inhumanity and distortion of that through that, 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 uh, that agreement to say, oh, I'm not, I don't want the state, I want free markets. What you're saying is the poor are going to stay poor and the rich are going to continue to get richer and richer and the hierarchies is going to get stronger and stronger in favor of the rich and powerful as they exist. So there's no liberty or voluntarism or, or non-aggression in any of that. So Peter, I just have a, I have a favor to ask you. Coming from a, my own personal perspective, I struggle sometimes with this issue because I am extremely anti-capitalist, but I also have an issue with like accepting this idea of a version of the U.S. government that's actually become more socialized and for the people. And I mean, I obviously have a huge problem uh, with libertarianism, but I can somewhat sympathize with just that idea in a vacuum of giving especially the U.S. government too much power. And I think that's probably because, and to a large extent, I mean, 9-11 and the anthrax attacks and the Iraq war and all the horrible atrocities we commit overseas, I think has sort of taken me to this cynical point where I don't know how to get fully on board with some of the, some of the more Marxist and socialist ideas. So I know this is asking a lot of you, Peter, but how can you convince someone like me to have a more idealistic or maybe zoomed out perspective of what something like what the government, U.S. government can look like if it was actually designed to help its own people instead of me being so terrified of what the U.S. government has become. Um, does that make any sense or, or can yeah, you help me with that? <laughs> uh, I'll, and I'll just roll back to say I, I do want to reiterate the necessity of people to take a ground up 
view and not categorize this as Marxist or socialist. It seems trivial when I say this, and I know people roll their eyes because they're like, well, does it matter? It does matter because we're continually reminding each other of these old historical concepts and philosophy that really are mostly outdated or completely irrelevant in discussion. I'm not criticizing you, by the way, because I know this is just the way people talk. Um, but so you know, going back to U.S. government. So what is the U.S. government? What is any government in this kind of economy? Because you can't look at the government institution without its economic foundation. A socialist economy would be, if using that word in the literal definition, uh, as historically practiced, a socialist economy is very different, as we know, in its organization than a capitalist economy. So that means that the basis of the social system, which is the economy, is what determines the characterization of the government. And if you look at what the U.S. government did with the Iraq war and everything else, that wasn't really a management issue, excuse me, that wasn't really um, government entities in and of themselves making decisions, which is the illusion. That is the massive trove of lobbyists and financial and special interests in the background that are always and constantly influencing everything the U.S. and most governments do. The, the best thing to highlight to people that are against government as a concept because of how disenfranchised, now alienated, and how angry they are at the behavior of their governments is to realize that the government is completely and utterly corrupted by money. It's almost cliche to say, but it's absolutely true. The, the House of Representatives in Congress, there are there's so many... So much money is given to these people. The lobbyists write the fucking, excuse me, lobbyists write the laws. They're, we miss that fact because it's not overtly transparent to us. The Iraq war was obviously a business interest that was long seated in combination with some other, you know, darker uh, general power interests on the behalf of the United States government. But again, you can't disassociate that, quote, government from the business power that supports it. Government is a business and its incentives are fundamentally the same on multiple levels. So that's what I would say to that. All the things that libertarians, for example, hate about the government is produced by the very system that they think they hold dear, which is capitalism. I really believe that because it's an empty it's an empty shell. It's an empty vessel otherwise. You know, we know the president has some power, clearly, uh, with executive orders and everything else, and the, the you know, rogueness of, say, what Trump has done. But we also realize that there are compromising elements that are always surrounding these people and their laws and what they do. And that, I think, is why if you remove or you disassociate as much as possible markets in a social system, theoretically, there is no incentive for the government to corrupt or become as malicious as it has. You can form a kind of governance, which, by the way, you know, as, in, as per your question, I don't think it would look like anything we see. Uh, a true government of management that has people involved today, I think, would be far more interactive. It wouldn't be about electing representatives. It would be about, uh, excuse me, in large part about actual policies that are debated and thought about by actual people. And then they move up at a grassroots level in a far more organized and in high integrity way than what we see today, where you just simply vote somebody in. They stay there for four years. They might do something they suggested. They might not. The only penalty they have is, is not doing and getting voted out, but that's okay because most of these people are going to go work on K Street anyway and make 10 times what they are making as a representative. Uh, so they see the incentive in the long run. I mean, so many of these politicians know exactly what they're doing when they come into power. They see down the road, they're going to get paid a lot of money to be a consultant or to work for other lobbying or governmental related institutions that, that have a lot of money at their disposal. There's a ton of money that goes into government. So anyway, I think the, I think the United States or any government that really represents people – 
would have a completely different organization from the ground up, and it would have to be based on an economy that's not hierarchically capitalistic, it would, excuse me, hierarchically competitive, which is the foundation, of course, of capitalism. That's a deep conversation, Robbie. If you'd like me to outline more so the the components of such a thing, I think it would take some time. <laughs> I've written sure. about a lot of that, but it, but it's so systemic is the point I'm trying to make. You can't just imagine a government within the capitalist model and expect that government to have any more integrity than it does right now. You have, I will, I'll, I'll finish by saying this, you have a, a general hierarchy of distribution across the planet due to years of colonialism and globalization, right? And certain countries, smaller ones, have been able to do far better in terms of public health, reducing socioeconomic inequality, and getting more sustainable methods in place. Uh, the Scandinavian countries, area of Germany, areas of Germany, and so on. There's, there's a lot of good work being done, but you notice it's all done in pockets. It's because that the power system across the world sets in different characteristics. And the more power certain, or excuse me, um, the more power certain countries have based on this colonial, competitive, economic, globalized reality, financialized reality, the more they tend to represent the characteristics of the, of the singular distortion psychology of the individual. Sorry, I'm not making this as clear as I want to be. So you've probably seen those studies with uh, from UC Berkeley and many others that talk about how when people get more money and power, there's certain tendencies for distortion. They become more apathetic. They become more disinterested in social programs. They, they, all these polls and stuff have been conducted uh, mm -hmm. in, and some neuro, cognitive neuroscience as well in terms of brain firing to show that on average, something happens to most people when they get a lot of money and power. So take that sickness, and that is a sickness, take that sickness and impose it upon the United United States, the empire, the empire with the most powerful world transnational uh, corporations underneath it. And the people that come into power are going to be the most sick, uh, predictably so, in the same way that the individual becomes distorted as they gain more wealth. Imagine a whole society doing this at the top of the hierarchy. So the United States is not like any other country. It's evolved in a very different way, and its characteristics are singular to itself, which is why, going back to Bernie Sanders, I don't believe in a lot of the things that we think are obvious that we think can be easily applied. I don't believe they're ever going to be easily applied to this country. The population's mm -hmm. too ignorant and too much of a, of a childish sort of... Uh, empire baby, I think is the word, and then the, the general, the general, the populace of of the excuse me, the political establishment is just incredibly distorted in favor of of the business mindset and the business game. So we can't just take Scandinavian policies and impose it upon America, and that's what Sanders, you know, always talks about. Um, so I hope that makes sense. I could rant on about that, but there's a there's an amazing socio social psychology and fundamental sociology that makes this country so much different and so much more in trouble in a lot of ways. And then when you compound that with the fact that it is a global influence in culture and how it's you know globalized not only its businesses and, and its profit interests, but it's globalized you know the way people dress, the way people think, the whole Westernization through American colonialism and globalization has further distorted. So I, for, in my new film, In Reflections, I do a lot of not, quote, anti-American things, but I have a lot of symbolism towards the, the sickness of America uh, from a guy that cuts his arm as he's trying to relieve uh, the pain he feels after going through many different drugs in a particular scene, and the, the blood is red, white, and blue. I have a school shooting scene. School shootings, which are pretty much a characteristic feature of this culture, only slowed down by by COVID. And as soon as things get back to normal, <laughs> I can assure you that the mass shootings will come back to normal as well. But I have a scene where a guy's got blood on his shirt. It's all red, white, and blue. So I use the symbolism to show the evolution of this country and the sad decline that it 
probably necessarily needs to face. Um, this experiment has run its course, and we're in a very, very tenuous circumstance right now. And I'll actually conclude by saying this is why we have someone like Donald J. Trump in, yep. in as a figure point. This is this is where we are in this evolution. And I think a lot of people, for example, don't understand that either. So anyway, right. I'll stop rambling. I'll stop he, rambling. It's a he is a perfect symbol of this kind of empire baby mentality that you're talking about. I mean, the, coupled with the reality stardom. I love that in Inner Reflections, you have that mass shooting scene because it really is such a bizarre characteristic of the Empire. There's just so many things that are unique about the Empire, right? You have the opiate addiction, you have uh, death by suicides that are rising here where they're falling around the rest of the world. You can go on and on about all, all of the things that make up how dystopian this country is in comparison to the rest of the world, but it's pretty fascinating one of the richest countries with the most resources and the most knowledge, and yet uh, majority of the population will be obese in a number of years because of malnutrition. This is another characteristic of this society. Horrifying. Yeah. So, Peter, another thing I wanted to discuss with you is a subject that's kind of gone by the wayside in, in a general sense, probably in the last eight years. We don't hear about it a whole lot. But, I mean, your Zeitgeist film trilogy was groundbreaking, seen probably hundreds of millions of times by people all around the world, sparked a global activist movement. And in the film, especially in the first film, um, you approach a very taboo issue that kind of vilified you as a conspiracy theorist and slapped that label on you that I'm sure in some ways still comes up today, you know, in in a negative context, which is unfortunate. But that issue is questioning the 9-11 attacks. Um, So how do you right now in 2020, um, given all that's happened, especially since the Trump era, parse the difference between uh, believing a theory like that the government had something to do with 9-11 and another conspiracy theory that has kind of enveloped everything in its wake, which is QAnon, which is a theory (laughs) claiming that the president is fighting a secret shadow war against a satanic deep state of elite pedophiles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, you, you draw a great um, spectrum there. The the conspiracy culture development since the reign of ever famous Alex Jones, you know, polluted just everything. I first of all deeply blame him personally. This guy's influence has been so substantial in regard to the the complete. Um, dismissal of things like 9-11, the, the complete dismissal of legitimate things that need to be questioned. I mean, my position on 9-11 is I don't know what happened, but I know what's not accurate in terms of the reporting and the terrible, the terrible, excuse me, the terrible um, investigation that was done by the state, hesitantly so. And I've put that to bed, of course. There's no point even really talking about the subject as much anymore unless you want to theorize around it. So, the issue of this spectrum of conspiracy, it, it's really quite sad. I mean, first of all, the notion of the term uh, is, is such a double-edged sword. Conspiracy theory, the conspiracy theorist. A conspiracy is two or more people that engage in a criminal act, usually in secret. And yet we throw that label on anything that has anything to do with the fringe, at least the mainstream media does. And it serves both an establishment-preserving role 
and a destabilizing role when it comes to people figureheads like Trump and the way he uses it as a technique to keep his base in contact and to justify uh, all the things that come against him, legitimately so in most cases. So on one side of the spectrum, you know, you have the Martin Luther King civil trial. I like to use this as the example. I hope I'm making sense here. The Martin Luther King civil trial was an amazing feat to point out there's an extremely high probability that MLK was not killed by the singular lone gunman, but it was actually a conspiracy with another individual and other individuals that had a connection to the U.S. government as dictated in the trial. So a, a scholarly person that, you know, isn't biased would see that and say, well, that's an interesting subject. That probably needs to be in the archives to understand that there are malicious forces in this world. There are people that have power that will do things and they're in their own interest. And then you take that and you throw it into the box of conspiracy theory now, and suddenly it's polluted by this incredible wave of nonsense, completely non-evidence-based belief, hence QAnon. So I, my, the spectrum is very dangerous because it's limiting critical thought, important areas, historical events that need to be considered. I mean, there still needs to be a legitimate investigation of the September 11th attacks. But if, for me to say that means that somebody out there is going to say, oh, Peter believes there were no planes that hit the towers. Someone's going to jump to these insane conclusions and lump you in that box. And that's where the danger happens. That's why it's so taboo on multiple levels. Speaking of those that actually have integrity. I mean, I don't, of course, I mean, obviously, if you say anything like that, you're going to be associated with a flat earther now. So you're, 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 you want to be practical for your own uh, integrity. Don't talk about things like 9-11 just because you're going to be lumped in to a bunch of nonsense. So, you know, Frederick Douglass has a quote, and he, I, th I think I have it. Yeah, I have it. Where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. The beauty of that quote is where he says, made to feel that there is an organized conspiracy to oppress. And this has been a looming feeling that the lower class has been dealing with for a very, very long time. And what do you do when you're in the darkness? You start to invent reality. So what happens, social media comes around, you have this underclass of poorly educated people and very underfinanced people that are looking for someone to blame. They don't understand system science, they don't understand group versus group dynamics, they understand that the whole world is basically organized in an antagonistic way, where this group or this individual is ultimately in competition with this group or individual, individual laborers, individual companies, nation states themselves. So you have literally a conspiracy reality where business itself is actually manipulating at all times how you perceive they're hiding things from each other. So the concept of manipulation is really the issue here. And if people don't understand where that happens, structurally, why this dynamic is balanced out, then they start to jump to conclusions. And this is where the sickness is today highlighted by someone like Trump, because Trump has weaponized it. And again, you can go back to Ali. Everything about QAnon is all the crap that Alex Jones used to talk about 10 years ago about pedophiles and Satanists. <laughs> and I mean, there's film, there's a film made in the same period of someone playing Dick Cheney and he like eats a baby at the Bohemian Grove. There's all this crazy, stupid global conspiracy stuff that's been around for so long. Um, and ultimately, it gets rooted into some very sick, you know, earlier stuff in the 20th century with anti-Semitism and the Jews running the world and all that stuff. Blood Sad, right. So, you know, 
I've, I've kind of lost my train of thought here, but the point being, you know, there are legitimate issues that need to be talked about and they shouldn't be called conspiracy theories. I just can't stand it. And there are ridiculous things that have come to fruition, which I can't believe take hold, which brings on a completely different kind of conversation about what social media, about group inclusion, about literally a post-truth reality, which is really, unfortunately, what social media has created in this regard. Everyone's in their bubbles. Everyone's being reinforced. They're getting biased confirmation constantly by the people around them. I don't know if you've ever talked to like a flat earther. Uh, their entire MO is just community. These guys, mm -hmm. A, think they're smart because they know something no one else does. And B, they have a robust, weird community. They get together and they hang out and mm -hmm. they debate, like, what is the sky? Is it, is it, is it a projection? <laughs> they, have, they argue internally about what they think. Um, anyway, it's all kind of cute in that regard. But And then the other side of it, and I have to point this out because there's such a heavy um, antagonism towards this behavior against QAnon and all the other grand conspiracies. And yet we still have completely nonsensical, non-evidence-based belief that everyone else just accepts, I don't know, like, like established religion. So I have to just point that out because we have this mm -hmm. spectrum of disillusionment and what people are supposed to believe and not supposed to believe. And yet there's this tolerance for all sorts of non-evidence-based belief that we just accept as normal too, adding to the schizotypal culture that we have, which all feeds in and out of itself, as I think both of you know. So critical thought is required. Education should be based on critical systemic thought. If people were educated properly and they weren't treated like garbage, people would not generate all these insane conspiracy theories. They wouldn't, they wouldn't reach out and then create that feedback loop of noise that eventually takes hold, where an internal dialogue, an internal narrative takes on a life of its own, and no one's going to contradict themselves because they don't feel they need to, because they don't actually believe in the evidence. It's all faith-based. So anyway, I can ramble on and on. If you have anything more specific about that, uh, you can feel free to ask. I mean, for me personally, um, I think 9-11 truth, getting pilled on that and, and embracing that um, so long ago for me was extremely formative psychologically for me to decouple myself from having whatever faith I still had in the mainstream media or U.S. government at that time was almost completely shattered by sort of letting myself go there psychologically. So I right. feel like it had value in that regard. And I, I get what you're saying about that, you know, you, you're at this point now where you don't even really know what happened on 9-11. And I feel like that as well, that the longer the time goes since 9-11, even though I was heavily invested in a lot of these specific theories, watched all the conspiracy documentaries, I feel almost sort of liberated by the idea that there's really no, it's such a big crime and such a vast conspiracy that clearly took place that to feel that you single-handedly can crack it open, I think is almost a form of arrogance. And I think a lot of truthers or plagued by that sort of like, I know the truth and you don't, you know, and right. I'm going to, I'm going to pill you. But like beyond that sort of more arrogant, overzealous mindset that a lot of frankly leftists resist 9-11 truth now because of, um, what, do you still see any value now? Like if you were just going to, you know, try to push or no, maybe that's a bad word, but try to influence someone's thinking on 9-11, where, where would your mind go now in terms of the most valuable thing to actually pill someone uh, on 9-11 about? Or would you just say, you know, let's talk about that another time. That's not the most important issue right now. Well, I mean, I don't put much priority in the subject. The critical thought and ability to think past traditional narratives would be the study. So if you were to look at it academically and how you would approach the subject, as far as you know, any particular thing outstanding, that's probably the hardest part about that event is there are so many things 
that are outstanding in in analysis that that raise red flags that you're almost overwhelmed and i think the propaganda against that truth movement did very well because all they had to do was go after a few small things and debunk them and then suddenly dismiss the rest of it and for the average person that's all that they needed because you know no one's spending the time to look into the actual event and its discrepancies but to answer your question, I'm not sure of any singular thing. I mean, I would, generally speaking, if someone's interested in the subject, I would recommend probably some books or some media on it that are, that are well-framed, that don't jump to conclusions, and ultimately allow them to use their own critical thought in the sense of, you know, probabilistically, and have a little bit of sense of history, and it's not out of the question. I'll say this, this idea that governments are on your side goes back to that conversation we had earlier, where we blindly miss why governments become so corrupted, why they are such toxic power systems because of business once again. And the idea though, that the government is in favor of the population, and this is the myth, in favor of their population and will preserve it and be a parental figure and then use all of this military violence against other nations is just that a myth. The populations of any given society are just as much an enemy to the power system as, as external populations or governments are. And to think that any government given the right circumstance, wouldn't engage in a military exercise against its own people for its own benefit, justifying it rationally, mind you. I think the people that would come up with an idea like this, they would justify it. They wouldn't see themselves as doing something evil or even wrong, because that's how the mind works with, with this rationalization about the greater good. I could easily see people, you know, looking the other way when they get warnings on the event. I can easily see the people gaming after the fact, saying, what if this happened? What could we do? What would it mean in terms of, in terms of what we could do with invasions and our, our looming issues with Iraq and Iran. So it, I, I, there's a lot to talk about in that. But mm -hmm. I, I would you know, argue for the most part that it is of great naivety to think that the military-oriented, excuse me, the military-industrial complex and the government that is its front in terms of the war machine, to think that that power, the billions and billions of dollars, would not turn on its own civil citizenry, <clears throat> excuse me, I think is deeply naive. I don't think it happens that often. But I think it's something that people need to keep in mind. With this kind of structure, everything is against everything else. And that's why, you know, they, they don't, the administration right now is willing, has been willing to let hundreds of thousands of people die just because of their interest to preserve the illusion of their own power and control in a, in a very bogus manner in this particular case. And there's really no excuse in terms of the Trump administration. But that's how they think. I have no question, for example, in terms of the people in the Trump administration, that they have no, no qualms about watching hundreds of thousands of people die as long as they maintain their power. That's just part of the nature of these people and how they've evolved. Right. And uh, in fact, these scenarios were gamed out and have been gamed out. And I'm sure. it seems interesting that, you know, American exceptionalism is such a disease that our ruling class openly pontificates about false flags and all of these concepts and, and in fact practices and carries out coups and right. bloodletting in the forms of disastrous wars for obvious profit all the time. Right. But when it comes to, you know, inflicting something like that um, to it, its own population, it seems just so beyond the realm of possibility for Americans, which I find really interesting. And I think, I mean, one thing that I would point to is just the insider trading I mean, going back to like oh, yeah. the the root of you know, the the market system and and just the naked profiting off uh, disasters like this. You can look at COVID. You know the fact that all yeah. these people cashed in right. right when they found out about what was impending. So yeah, the insider trading on nine eleven. Look into it. I mean, I don't know how you can deny that that took place and what that means. 
in terms yeah. of what we've been told. I mean, I think this is an example of like a really legit conspiracy that's important to just understand how nefarious elements that you just spoke about, how these structures play out and and what it means in terms of, you know, the trust in the system, the trust in government. Unfortunately, Peter, you are probably the most sane person that that arose out of what was, <laughs> I guess, largely the truth movement. I mean, all of these people that used to be affiliated with uh, this idea or, or used to speak about these things 15 years ago, 20 years ago, have gone on to essentially think Donald Trump is fighting the deep state. Yeah. This bizarre shift of conspiracy culture toward right-wing politics and hijacking just the idea of questioning things like state or corporate power into complete distractions like QAnon. And it's not even like it's on the fringes, which, you know, 20 years ago, if someone told me that an open a person running for Congress was an open 9-11 truther, it would be absolutely appalling, right? And now you have like right. dozens of congressional candidates running as open QAnoners. Yep. Not just that, political and media figures who embrace this alternate reality who are literally legitimized by Trump himself, like being retweeted constantly or invited to the fucking White House for things like a social media summit where right. you literally saw people like Mark Dice going back to the <laughs> pedophile obsession, you know, yeah. ever, Rihanna's a, a quote-unquote... <laughs> prostitute for Satan and eating babies and all the shit sitting in the Rose Garden. I mean, you cannot get more surreal yep. than that. <laughs> like, just how did you personally feel seeing <laughs> well, I, all of this happen? <laughs> I'll clarify that <laughs> while that film was associated with the 9-11 truth, and obviously it had that section in it, and yeah. it built on similar you know themes in terms of other things in the film, the presentation of that work was still an art piece as a performance sure. piece. And again, I put it online, as I've explained many times before yeah. to everybody. And I, I didn't, I wasn't, in other words, I wasn't some 9-11 truther. I had said, this is really great subject matter, and I like how this fits in the style of this, this shock piece that I want to put forward. And I just did it. And I immediately shifted gears, people might remember, when I did Zeitgeist Addendum one year later. And I do have a little moment in there that relates to 9-11 truth, uh, just because I thought it was it highlighted the most important thing that needed to be highlighted as far as I was concerned. But I, I moved on quite rapidly, realizing course, that I had an audience. But you know what I mean. Oh, you like, know absolutely. what I mean about the people, people who are just like in the periphery, yeah. Oh, yeah, but it's like, again, it's, I, I can't help... I mean, Alex Jones, I think he doesn't get as much blame, not only for the fact of what he's propagated for his own financial interests, just off the cuff with his enormous audience at one time, but also the fact that he basically was a self-fulfilling prophecy when it came to censorship. Mm -hmm, He's the first, mm -hmm. as far as I know, that's been banned from all social media. And that is a terrible slippery slope. He has set the ultimate precedent by him, his lunacy, and willfully so, to allow for everything that he's been trying to deter in his own words. I mean, he's literally promoting a president that's talking about martial law and all the things that Alex Jones used to be against. Like, it's insane. So it just goes to show the, the complete faltering of the, these people and the fact that we never should have listened to any of them to begin with. I never, I never took Alex Jones seriously to begin with, ultimately, but he does have a lot of influence, and it's just incredible to me. And again, going back to QAnon, it's just a rehashing of all that s silly, satanic pedophilia stuff that Alex was talking about 15 years ago. And again, it's echoes of other things that are highly anti-Semitic and so on that go back even farther. So I know, I've watched folks, you know, deter, I've met some really frightening people over the years, as you might imagine, mm -hmm. in their paranoia. And I always look at it, you know, from a sociological perspective, these people come from somewhere, they're a product of something. Uh, the sad thing now is that all these poor people that have, that have been deluded, they're uneducated, they're in their bubbles now on social media, what they've done, they've created an alternate universe 
of, of pluralism, a form of pluralism that's so insanely irrational, and they're going to keep fomenting. I think even if Trump is voted out, these people are not going away. They're, gonna, they're just going to blame the deep state on Trump being removed, and then they're going to keep fomenting this. And it's just, it's just going to be fascinating to see what happens. I can only imagine that social media is just going to keep banning them, and that will just be another self-fulfilling prophecy where they, get, they feel validated because they got right. banned. Anyway, so I have, yeah, I, I, I was asked by Vice a while back in, a, in an interview if I felt any blame for this kind of stuff. When <laughs> no, seriously, that was, it was a legitimate. It was a legitimate question because Zeitgeist was a very popular film, yeah. and I just stated first of all the fact that the film's intent wasn't to be some quote conspiracy movie. I, I really I feel that's a detraction from the purpose of that film, and the ideas presented in the film. I think have either A, have a legitimate analytical place, or B, are there for artistic artistic interests, are there for mm-hmm. sparking creative thought, are there to say, hmm, I wonder if somebody will take critical interest in this statement by this person. That's why, you know, the film is a montage of a bunch of people saying different things. It's, it just hits you from all sides. And I use the ploy of authority, which is exa- the exact same thing I do in my new film, and In Reflections. I have fake academics of the future talking about the past, because when you hear someone speak about something as if they are an authority on it, for some reason we believe it, and then you get validation by multiple people speaking. And that's how, of course, social media convincing works. You just keep getting validation by all the noise around you singularly through each message, through each, through each tweet and so on. But if you do that with multiple people speaking, it adds a unique dynamic to persuasion, especially if you make it discordal, which is what I tried to do in the original Zeitgeist. But I will say I will never make another movie like Zeitgeist again because it walked a dangerous line between truth and propaganda, even though I would never use that term. But because of the artistic license mm-hmm. I put in that, that work, uh, it was just doomed. I mean, again, that's why I never anticipated releasing it. It would just be doomed to be criticized into oblivion because of its of its daring style. So, anywho, yeah, yeah I understand. It's the conspiracy culture is with us now in a very dark place, and all I can say is that until we start to increase skeptical education and we start to remove the the shadows of a highly oppressive, competitive, groupistic system in a terrible social stratification where you're always going to have an underclass that is uninformed and basically feels, as Frederick, Frederick Douglass stated once again, that there, there's a conspiracy against them. That's, this is the kind of tendencies um, that will keep moving forward. These cultures will continue to persist. It's actually really interesting, Abby. I never thought mm-hmm. that the, those crazy, you know, Alex Jonesian or David Eichian concepts that you could just sit back and be amused by. Frankly, I found it all amused. I used to love sitting back and watching a David Icke lecture because right. it was the most hilariously entertaining thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> like, if, if any percentage of what he said was true, you're just sort of, like, baffled. And, of course, Icke is a lunatic. Uh, he really is. He's compounded his delusional sense of reality in this narrative over and over, years after years. And finally, people are literally starting to believe him because his underpinning is right there with QAnon. He's been talking about the satanic people as well. So anyway, I won't go on any insulting tangents here, but it is fascinating. It is. And I guess seeing how batshit crazy Alex Jones became in terms of embracing the very thing that he was warning us about forever, the martial right. law and cheering it on and saying, let's, you know, at, at any cost, let's crush this Antifa and the left by, you know, militarized police forces. And then you see people like Stefan Molyneux, who, of course, you had that tedious debate with oh, um, where he just was horrible. But I mean, people like him, like literally becoming white nationalist, you know, like like seeing how just surreal the trajectory yeah. and evolution of these characters have become, I, I just regret, you know, on breaking the set, I remember early on having Stefan Molyneux talking about the Iraq war. And if I knew 
what I know now today, you know, and like the affiliations sure. that I had with, oh, I like even inviting these motherfuckers on and legitimizing them at all is just so sad. Um, it's just so weird. It's just so, so weird how many of those people became Donald Trump bootlickers. But as you mentioned, I mean, this is just going along with what you're saying, and perhaps you've already answered this, but it's not just QAnon. It's like this complete detachment from reality to like literally everything, alternate versions of the truth from the fires aren't really happening because of climate change, right? The most obvious thing of all, they're happening because of Antifa setting them, weather weapons, COVID isn't real. It's this global conspiracy to vaccinate people and form some sort of mask wearing tyranny. And then you have, I'm sure you've met plenty of these people who think the school shootings aren't real, even though it's like the most obvious like right. evolution of this empire baby syndrome and the individualism of, of modern society, right? But it's like, how how are you so detached? I mean, what I feel like is the magical thinking resonating so much here as opposed to other countries? Is this happening around the world? I, I don't know. I haven't traveled in the last couple of years since really Trump's been in office to understand if this is something that is just like a global phenomenon or is it again, like a uniquely American thing that people are believing fantastical, magical thinking and like devolving into these crisis cults here. I think that the American brand is definitely outstanding. I'm unaware. Mm -hmm. I know Europe, of course, you know, there's similar things that happen in, in Britain and so on, but nothing on the scale that I've seen. Granted, you know, I haven't gone and, and mm -hmm. done any <clears throat> strategic search, searching through these societies to see what kind of conspiracies they're promoting, but the U.S. seems to be the originator of most of this, and it carries forward to whatever extent. I think it's a part of its evolution. I think the sickness of the society, the, the socioeconomic inequality, for one, which greatly messes up social trust. Uh, we kind of paranoia and cynicism that has has defined culture in part is because of the socioeconomic inequality and all of things that stem from that. So you end up, you know, again, with a subclass. And it's not just like, you know, you can't just be economically defined. You can't just say, oh, it's just, you know, this lower class mm -hmm. people. It starts, I think, in those areas. It starts with that in combination with ignorance. And then you have people that live in their bubble simultaneously. They might be well-to-do, middle class, upper class, you know, these celebrities that come out against QAnon, for example. And it just continues the bubble mutation uh, in social media, particularly. And then it takes hold like a, like a trend and a virus in and of itself. I don't know. I think U.S. brand is particular, though. I, I don't think, you know, in Sweden, they're they're talking about anything like this. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It, again, I, I can't emphasize enough the need to step back and try not to be too mean to these people and really just look at where they're coming from and look at the terrible sociological preconditions that have created this sickness from the failure of the educational system and critical mm -hmm. thought to their feelings of, of disenfranchisement and alienation, which is absolutely lockstep with the way most of the, most of the society, the lower class society particularly, has been treated in America. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it made perfect sense to me when all the people that were for Bernie went to Trump after, after Bernie lost the uh, nomination. Does it? That perfect sense, of course. You know, because these are people that are just completely disenfranchised by the establishment and they have all of these characteristics that at one point, you know, saw Bernie as the outsider because that's all that really mattered. I mean, they, they favored the social programs to some degree, I'm sure. But the fact that they immediately went over and voted for Trump goes to show that it was all about the rebellion. It was all about the anger and the rejection. And I think that's happening on multiple levels. I think that the narratives, I think, for example, the progressive left community, because they see this narrative against Trump. It's so nihilistic. 
Yeah, well, because they see this narrative against Trump where they they see the point the, the mainstream media pointing out things that the mainstream media typically never would do for a president. They would never never go after a figure in the way that the mainstream on the left, like the CNN breed, has done. Mm-hmm. You still have you know Fox News in its in its corner, but there's been a, a very unprecedented um, attack against the executive branch. And I think what's happened in the progressive left is they see the mainstream narrative and they choose to reject that on the grounds that it's coming from the mainstream alone. I've noticed this in my own discussions with people that are still on the fence in this election, as if it shouldn't be absolutely and atrociously obvious that you get rid of the orange monster. This guy has to go. He has all the fascistic tendencies. He is a fascistic character because of his business associations. He's publicly stated his interest in domination and a lack of interest in democracy. That's why he favors strong men in the political sphere. That's why he he loves to praise people like Putin, uh, just because he sees that as a business kind of framework. And that's what he's used to. He is a businessman and business is a dictatorial structure. And people miss that. But anyway, going back to the way the left has kind of confused all this, is they see the narrative and they think just because the narrative is now in the public sphere that's to be rejected. For the first time, the narrative in the mainstream about a presidential figure is actually quite accurate. Uh, what you see being talked about in terms of his mental health and his interest to manipulate and the voter uh, uh, suppression and everything that he's been doing, <laughs> this is legitimate stuff that's observable by anybody. But because the mainstream is saying it, people are becoming antagonistic towards it. Do you see what I'm trying to say? There's a, there's a tacit rejection of all sorts of things that are right in front of our eyes that are easy to understand, that are rationally digestible and evidence-based, but people are rejecting it on the grounds of their alienation. Um, And I think that's a very dangerous place to be in uh, as a so-called democracy by whatever measure. Yeah, that's why his whole weaponization of the fake news narrative has really right. taken off because it it's true to a certain extent. Of course, we you know there's massive public distrust in mainstream media for a very yeah. good reason. But right. it's like when yeah, I mean when Donald Trump's able to to hijack that and use it to his own benefit, it's a really dangerous thing. And then you have kind of these anti-democratic establishment leftists who have such seething hatred for the establishment that they end up essentially apologizing for Trump. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really sadistic, ultimately. I think it's, there's a sadism here that's where people are pretty much willing to let things get much worse and to burn the thing down, burn things down that should not be burned down. Uh, greater ecological decline is not going to help anybody. Greater socioeconomic inequality is not going to help anybody. Years ago, I used to subscribe to the general notion that was put forward by Jacques Fresco, which was in partnership with the Zeitgeist Movement a long time ago. And his theory was you'd see some kind of social collapse, which would bridge and make a path towards a new society. I don't believe that anymore. I think that we will continue to reacclimate towards darker and darker um, conditions, and we will just see a greater decline. You're going to have climate refugees. You're going to have all sorts of things that become normalized, uh, just like, you know, <laughs> kind of just like COVID is now normalized since there's no federal response. And we're going to have to deal with this looming virus for years to come, most likely, uh, under the assumption, of course, that this vaccine will will uh, be probably what it is, which is a rush to produce, which means it's going to probably cause a good percentage of sickness, which I mark my words, I guarantee you when they start rolling this out, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to act, going to respond very adversely. And that's not an anti-vaxxer mm-hmm. thing. That's because they're not giving the time. It takes years to create something like this right. efficiently. And then, I mean, of course, then the market comes in, the market's competing in the vaccine, which is even more insane. You have all these countries doing it on their own. They're not sharing their information, but that's another subject. 
So anyway, yeah, the fake news, everything that's been created, even you know, going back to Stefan Molyneux, who likes to talk about IQs and how the white race is going smarter. <laughs> this is Trump. Trump says the same shit, right. but he implies it. He knows Trump is slick enough in his 75 years of manipulation to know how to plant the seeds of all of this baiting without being completely overt. And that's one other reason why he's so outrageously dangerous. Hate crimes are on the rise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just as I a mean, final rhetoric statement. rhetoric has consequences, you know? I mean, it, of it course. does. If you have 40% of the United States believing in Trump, which is a very crude statistic, I suspect it's a little less than that now, but let's just say that's true. It's probably close enough. That means you have 40% of the people that are more or less listening to him and him alone. They're not, they've already dismissed the fake news. So he becomes a paternal figure and what he puts out in his Twitter feed and what he sets in motion becomes a, like a, a decreed kind of uh, sensibility. I mean, I think the, the original rejection of any kind of safety precautions for COVID is why the United States has had such a terribly ridiculous response. I think if there was a, a federal top-down mandate that simply gave that overarching pressure and said, listen, folks, it's kind of smart to wear masks. We should probably do that. And let's just mandate it. And you know, everyone just relax out there. If someone in authority as a father figure said that, I guarantee you we'd have had a much better uh, reaction and the states wouldn't be as polluted as it is now. I mean, I can only imagine your stress, Abby. You've got a child to deal with. You have to protect this child at all times. I mean, the, the stress of dealing with my parents, you know, it's like the whole, <laughs> yeah. the, it's like the whole society now has PTSD as far as I'm concerned. Like everyone is so stressed out. Everyone's so exhausted. You know, now we're, everyone's arming themselves because of the election. I'm sure you might have seen in LA, they reported that they're oh, yeah. gun closing. lines outside of gun stores. I mean, yeah, this they're, is they're, a... This and is they're closing down streets because they, they expect yeah. riots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there's like it's internal insane. documents saying that there's going to be a, a political flashpoint of like violence. I mean, you have the, the Aegean yeah. militias going to patrol the polling exactly. places. I mean, this is a president who thrives on paranoia confusion, which right. I think is really unlike any president that I, I at least in mm. my lifetime, no one's no. ever done this. It's like he, he, he thrives on chaos. He is, he's a chaos agent and he is a true cult of personality. And that's something that I want to leave with folks that are still on the fence. No, at no time, and especially Joe Biden, he could never be a cult of personality like Trump is. Trump is a very particular mentality groomed by this system with a silver spoon in his mouth, learned to be competitive, manipulative, learned to get his way in to try and win on all costs. He's for 70 years, he's groomed the psychology and it's so pathological at this point. And he really is fascistic in his very entity, which is not precedented in American society. No, we've never had a king reemerge where you literally have 40% of the population listening to one person like a cult and obeying what he says and taking everything he says to heart. That's never happened. That's why he's so dangerous. That's why, I mean, it's not just Trump. It's the people that he's created. It's the culture that mm-hmm. he's manifesting that it is going to really harm uh, this country and the world in many ways for a good deal to come, even if he's voted out. The damage has been long done. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, Peter, that you mentioned earlier is this idea that because the mainstream media is now going after Trump harder than they've maybe gone after any president before that I can remember, it creates this sort of knee-jerk reaction in people who don't trust establishment or mainstream narratives right. to just look away or maybe even not believe that some of the things that you know CNN will accurately cover about Trump Um and that's a really interesting phenomenon to me. And I see that playing out in a dangerous way to this disillusionment where, you know, one good example I've seen of it recently is sort of the woke corporate culture. It's like there's a lot of leftists even who are, you know, hesitant to adopt sort of the superficial wokeness, which I am too. But then they're like, well, you know, 
you basically subscribe, you know, they'll say things like you basically are subscribing to a movement that has the sponsorship of McDonald's. And it's like when we get to that level of cynicism and disillusionment, it worries me when I see that on the left because it's like, well, of co- you know, there's a difference here between the corporate superficial wokeness and sort of fake racial solidarity with the real important issue of actual class and racial solidarity that's still extremely fundamental Right. And to, for, to see people sort of conflate those together as a way of rejecting them as, oh, this is just the mainstream media trying to get one over on Trump again. It's yeah. not real. I even see the same thing with, you know, the rise in white nationalist violence or these far right militias because the mainstream media has talked about them so much. A lot of people on the left have sort of unplugged and not taken it as seriously right. as they should be. Now, I maybe touch on that, but I also wanted to veer back slightly just to QAnon, because this also does something similar. There's a similar thread here where, you know, I'm in a QAnon Facebook group right now. <laughs> that's that's a that's a crit- critical view on QAnon, you know? So I went in there thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to have these really sort of, you know, deep discussions with people. We'll try to parse out what's good, what's bad here, how we can move forward from this. And I was extremely upset, actually, because one of my first posts, I was like, hey, here's a Bill Moyers special from 2014 where he's talking about the deep state, but he's talking about it in an extremely intelligent, analytical way that's Mm -hmm. largely true and would be acceptable to most people on the left who understand that structural critique. But every comment I got, Peter, was basically saying, no, there is no deep state. That's a crazy term. It's kooky. The deep state are just career politicians. This is not a real thing. And I'm just thinking, did we, is, is QAnon? Cause, or is Trump's just talk about the deep state actually causing another knee-jerk reaction where people are like, no, that's not real because Trump's talking about it. Yeah. I mean, have you seen examples of what I'm talking about besides this? Or do you think I'm overstating the danger of, of what this can do? I think I touched upon that a little bit earlier, the rejection on both sides. You have a progressive community that wants to reject what the mainstream media says. And then you have the right-wing Trumpian community that basically just rejects everything that Trump um that, uh, excuse me, that Trump disagrees with, I think those knee-jerk reactions are, are pretty pretty wacky. And all I, can, all I can say is that we need people to think critically. I, I don't listen to anything in regard to the, the media when it comes to Trump. All I have to do is listen to what Trump says and does. That's, yeah. that's all you have to do. And if people just took that position, I, mean, I don't know how many times I've posted things critical of Trump on, on Twitter and whatnot, and someone invariably comes back and says, ah, you're just a pro-Democrat and you listen to the mainstream narrative. And this is exactly what you're talking about, this tacit rejection. Well, it's not tacit, it's, it's literal rejection based on this false relationship that's been created that's completely absent any kind of critical thought. And it's very dangerous. It's post-truth reality out there. Everyone is is grasping at beliefs based on community and based on what is validated inside their little bubbles rather than any kind of logic or reason. In in my new film, I have a one statement that I always think is a, is a very important one that I, tr- I want to talk more about on the podcast eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, and that is humans are social beings first and intellectual beings second. We are so vulnerable in our psychology to what other people think, other people think, and how we are group inclusive or not, that we bend our reality. And going back to 9-11, there was a period of time when there was an actual intelligent public debate where it wasn't all just, you know, overarching hatred and dismissal. 
And for a short period of time, that happened. But what did the media do? The media immediately turned it into a kooky conspiracy idea. And all it took was for the general population to start believing that there was no integrity to this theory. And then everybody else that was, I'm not, and this is different from Abby's point, but a lot of people that were looking at this from intellectual, a non-conspiratorial intellectual investigative standpoint, they got so frightened. They, they ran away. Mm -hmm. And they, they either ran away entirely or they joined the, uh, the new consensus, which was that, oh, this is clearly what the government stated and so on. So that pressure, social pressure is so powerful. It's something that really needs to be talked about, it's something kids should learn about when they are in any kind of study, epistemological and psychological study. They need to understand that they are going to have a gravitation in their psyche that wants to be group inclusive. And there are all sorts of subconscious cues and things that happen. I mean, your people's reputation, you know, no one wants to be associated with the fringe belief because it's going to harm the way they're perceived. And then and hence they can't get a job. So anyway, that's a different tangent. But I think I understand what you're saying. And I, I completely agree with you. There's this in incredible detachment that's happened out there uh, based on group inclusion fundamentally and the, the subconscious psychology that goes along with it. That's why social media is so is so dangerous in this regard. Social media itself is okay. Well, aside from the fact that it's designed to make you addicted and all of that stuff. But in terms of the idea <laughs> of having rapid communication between people and sharing knowledge does have its positive elements, of course. It adds it has a deeper sensitivity and pluralism. But the moment they throw likes on everything, the moment it becomes a popularity contest, and the moment everyone bans everyone they don't like and everyone you know keeps their own bubbles of who they agree with, that's when the, the different estates of consciousness start to be created, if you will. And mm -hmm. that's why it's so dangerous, especially at this time, because you have an undereducated population that's very fearful and they are gravitating towards erroneous beliefs out of comfort uh, because of their social inclusion. And feelings of superiority and all that stuff we talked about as well. People that just think they're smart because they've they're so insecure because they've been beaten down by this society so much that they think you know they're better than somebody else because they believe the the earth is flat because oh I'm smarter than you I think the earth is flat and you don't. Anyway. <laughs> well, no, it's it's interesting um, that you talk about the social pressure because I I didn't ask that in part of my question, but that's one of my biggest concerns here is that people will. Are, are going to be self-censoring, not just what they post on the internet, but just even their own thoughts or yeah. what they're willing to even entertain. Right. And that's really disturbing to me because, I mean, here we are, I don't know, five, six years out from the Snowden leaks. Right. That created an enormous chilling effect that, frankly, people, including The Intercept and even Greenwald, barely talk about the psychological implications of that, which to me is kind of strange that we didn't have like a whole crash course on how to mentally deal with all those revelations. And now we're basically just having chilling effects and social pressure paradigms stacked upon one another because we have the Silicon Valley sort of stifling of what we can see, hear, and read on the social media networks now mm -hmm. and all this other stuff that you're referring to and just being afraid to resemble anything that's like QAnon or even resemble anything that's like what Trump is saying, even though Trump says a lot of true things that sort of cut through a lot of the rhetoric sometimes in a vacuum, he'll say them. Um, so that's, I, I guess that's what really concerns me. And, you know, and because we're so exposed online these days, um, it, it must create a very strange environment for even a child to be raising right now. It's hard for me to mm. understand how they're even processing that social pressure. And I, you know, unfortunately, I don't think their parents are telling or teaching them what you're encouraging, which is <laughs> how to understand how that psychological phenomenon works and how to actually think critically and individually. And that's, um, and that's a real shame. And, and that's what we need more of um, right now, especially. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. 
the status and profit-driven social media market, you know, what creates the fascinations with people's bodies on Instagram or the compromises that people do to sell things if they want to make money off of this. Or, for example, uh, when I was casting for the film, I met all these actors that they were talking about how they couldn't get any work because they didn't have enough Instagram followers. And I asked them, well, what, oh it, what does that have to do with anything? They're like, well, they only hire people now that have big social media followers. Why? Because there's a built-in market. So suddenly the artistry is thrown out the window in favor of an existing audience for marketing. So this whole thing, it, it's worthy of, I'm actually working on another documentary and the preliminary stages of it. It's called A World Without Advertising. And it's a, it's a gateway kind of concept where I'm going to talk about what advertising has done, but keep going deeper and deeper into the psychological sickness that is far more important to talk about than just, say, the, you know, the superficial issues of manipulation. We have become walking advertising entities. And it's not just, you know, commercialization of, you know, beauty and stuff like that. It's also political. What is Trump? Trump is a brand and he speaks in slogans. <laughs> That mm -hmm. is all he is. That's why he repeats himself over and over again, which he does deliberately, by the way. There's a book that there's that he wrote, he read a long time ago that talks about if you want to convince people of something, you repeat yourself three times. If you pay close attention to how Trump speaks, he's always, you think he's just doing it because he can't find another, another sentence or a thought, but he's actually <laughs> doing it deliberately. He speaks in slogans and he is a brand. He is a walking facade. And that is what civilization has become. Whether it's, you know, trying to date, whether it's trying to make friends, whether it's trying to get a job or any kind of participation. Everyone has this front and it's just terrifying to me. It's just getting worse and worse. You know, at least you go back, you know, a hundred years, the, the sickness of overarching cultural cascading, I call it, where you you go to social media, it's just a cultural cascade. It's this never ending scroll of, of stuff. And usually it's centered around commercialization, winning an identity and, and that kind of ethic of being superior. People present themselves in social media as if they're successful, you know, it, there's this whole air to it. And it, it, it's a whole conversation of itself. I, I think I get, mm -hmm. I think I've made my point. It's, it's truly frightening what the commercialization of and the marketization of society has done, which is what leads me back to my solution orientation. That is the deep need to change the structure and demarketize. That's a word that I'm going to be using a lot in upcoming talks as I prepare for a lecture. Demarketization has to be done strategically if we expect to salvage this society. It means using technology that is now advanced enough and small enough through a process called ephemeralization, the ability of technology to do more and more with less and less and less, um, which is our true economic wealth, by the way. You know, the true peak of economic wealth is our ability to accomplish something with a zero footprint. That's the goal. Accomplish something with efficiency that has productivity, but with no footprint whatsoever. If you can do that, and that's where we're heading, and which leads me to the to the activist point where you can actually get people off the grid now, not just you know, not just with solar panels for their home, but you can create mesh networks for phones and internet. You can begin to create um, sharing networks and tool libraries and 3D printing shops. The only thing that things exist, by the way, in, in places like Canada, there's a, a looming environment excuse me, an emerging environment of all these sharing networks where they're not using any money and they're doing it deliberately not to use money. Very, very good. Time bank systems. So I'm not going to go on that tangent as of yet unless you want to hear more about that. But my new approach to activism right now is building from the inside out. Don't get a bunch of people together and live in a commune somewhere and hope for the best. You have to start building with the technology we have to demarketize as much of civilization as possible. And that, I think, is going to be the most noble activist um, excuse me, the most uh, efficient activist approach that we have right now 
lobbying governments and markets stuff is, is going to be part of it to a degree. I think there has to be a massive strike against the energy system to stop hydrocarbon production. I've been pondering this one as well, even though that's been on, on the tip of people's tongues for many years. But there has to be a way to give people confidence to actually go forward with the strike in a way they don't feel like they're going to lose their job or they're going to be beaten up by police and so on. It has to be so massive in order to accomplish that. And the third thing I'll just mention in passing since I've started this tangent is you have to have a more efficient problem-solving system. Right now, through the use of commercial institutions, problem solving is very limited and it's very decentralized in an, in an unfortunate way. There needs to be a university system. The true hub of future development will be the universities. That's where goods will be designed and created. That's where intellectual development, intellectual property, so to speak, uh, that's where this investigation should occur. You should get rid of corporations and the universities become the hubs of creative development. And then what do you do? You network them all together with particular problems. If there was any intelligence regarding the COVID-19 um, solution, there would have been a massive network of universities that are sharing all information across the world to assess certain issues. Same with all the stuff related to energy efficient, excuse me, can't talk today. All the stuff related to ecological sustainability and the need to create a new energy system. If you got all the universities together to address the problem of the inefficiencies or the lags of solar, wind, and intermittency, and all those things that people keep talking about, debasing the potential, and you got them together to do it, we'd solve this problem in a matter of weeks. But unfortunately, priorities are too skewed. So that's those are some things that I'm working on just to throw it out there. Yeah, and you've you've spoken extensively about you know the problems with the activist culture that don't have, that doesn't rather have a systems approach instead of just all of these different compartmentalized groups trying yeah. to lobby, you know, the market structure. It's just like, we need to, we need to come together and understand that we need to replace <laughs> the market structure with something before we can, I don't know, coordinate our efforts. It's just, it's just so daunting, obviously, because this is a global thing, you know, and we're, again, the empire babies that, where our government has this giant military arsenal that it just seems very, very scary. Um, right. I, you know, I, I'm looking forward to your open letter to the conspiracy culture, people who want to hear more about your thoughts on that. And also like systemic racism should again, check out revolution. Now you've had several episodes outlining that, but I think one of the things that you said on your podcast that really got to me and you mentioned it here briefly was our ability as social creatures and just pathologically to just acclimate. You know, and, and this is something mm -hmm. that I've always thought there's just going to be a spark, you know, like like even the pandemic, when the pandemic came, I was like, OK, this is it. Right. This is right. the moment when people are going to finally demand and change the system. Like we're going to finally understand that we can't live like this. But it, that's not what happened at all, Peter. And in fact, people are just going to continue to acclimate to further and further degradation of their reality. So I don't know if you want to go any more into that and what you what's your response? And this is such a huge question. I see people ask you this all the time. Every time you say anything on social media, they're just like, well, what can we do? How are we going to change the world and all this shit? And it's like, I don't know, man, I'm just putting out there what I see. <laughs> you know, it's like, course, I don't have yeah. the ability. I don't have like I don't have the roadmap for you to like for us to get from here to there. But I, I mean, what do you say? Well, I do have more of a roadmap now yeah. than as I've re I've reorganized the way I think about this, so going back to culture in general, excuse me, going to activist culture in general, the problem is it's just it's too pluralistic. They're, everyone's going in multiple directions at once. So the reason nothing happened with COVID, which was an incredible opportunity, is because no one knew what was supposed to happen. I mean, I, you wouldn't believe how many emails I got when, when this started. I'm asking, you know, should we do this, this, and this? The general public appeal uh, 
their solution orientation. There has to be some kind of shared incentive and shared belief system when it comes to social change. And I think that's the ultimate problem. There isn't a shared belief system as of yet. The fundamental logic of sustainability really is too esoteric to people. The caustic nature of socioeconomic inequality and how we are basically allergic to this kind of organization of society, it causes more sickness than help. Uh, leading us to destruction as clear path as we can see. None of that information is really understood by people, which is you know why we always try to do what we can. But when I talk about excuse me decentralized um, activist initiatives that do has to do with rebuilding within communities, as I'm going to you know talk about in more detail when I get this sort of peer reviewed paper together. I think that's where the solution resides. Building on a kind of early anarchist conception, I'm not referring to true, um, you know, anarchists in the sense that there's no organization, no state, nor am I referring to, you know, the Bitcoin anarchists that just want to be secretive and be off the grid and not have their identity known. You know, these people in Europe that still meet the anarchist associations, they always wear big black masks. It's just spooky when you look at the history of anarchism in the truest <laughs> sense. But there is something unique about what they're saying, and that is, even though they frame it in the sense of anti-state and anti-control, it's all about independence. It's all about self-regulation. It's all about creating an environment for themselves where they're not interacting with the forces that they find problematic or troublesome. And that's what I think we can do now. And if you could imagine, like in Los Angeles, people that have gotten off the grid from the telecommunications networks, they're no longer using power from the existing grid because of advancements in in uh, renewable energy systems that are small and localized. They're using, again, using mesh networks for all their communications. They are going into centralized places with design uh, design uh, issues, excuse me, going into areas of the cities where they can design and organize small kinds of products as a community in a true economic democracy where they're working together, where tool libraries and sharing systems start to emerge, where time banks emerge, and suddenly people in a very intricate way are able to engage labor in exchange with each other, so to speak, but they're not using money. Now, if you had that integrated in, into society, and again, these are all things that are already kind of happening. You, are, you still have, you have 3D printing shops out there now. You have people designing things at home, bringing them so they can print out clothes for themselves. The kernel seeds of all of this is happening as technology evolves through ephemeralization. And if you did that, though, not only would you be helping all these people that don't have money, like right now, I mean, unbelievable numbers of people that don't have the money to do what they need to to get their needs met. You would create an infrastructure for them to actually begin to thrive once again. But the more people you get involved in that structure, the more you drop GDP in a, a given nation, the more you stop the circulation of money. So the greatest form of activism we can do is to stifle this system. And that, I think, is the most strategic way to do it. And there's really no way you can come after this approach to say it is subversive or anything, because it's it's completely legal. It's really a matter of people's commitment to want to not to be associated to this kind of economy anymore. And who can argue that? I mean, there will be legal things that will try, of course. Like in Florida, they remove the ability in some areas. I think it's I think it's all of Florida actually, where you can't be off the grid. You can't just have solar panels and be off the grid. They force you to pay the utility company by law. Now that's that's unfortunate, and that is one of the problems that will be hit if this kind of pattern emerges. But if, if that picture makes sense to you too, just imagine if you could do that. You create a network of institutions that are completely community-driven, that are self-contained, that ultimately get you demarketized. I think that's, that's the only solution I can come up with, and that's the kind of program I'm hoping to install. Eventually, you have an app on your phone that has this network, and you're able to navigate your life through community involvement in that way. Not only would it be re reinvigorating to deglobalize in that sense, to bring back normal communities, 
It would also be far more efficient in the long run because of the localization in and of itself, which of course I really believe in. Uh, localization is probably the most important ecological thing we can do. Stop importing strawberries from Bolivia or wherever and mm -hmm. you know, start making mm -hmm. this stuff or stuff. Stop exploiting labor here and there and start applying automation. So anyway, I again, it's a, lot, it's a big con conversation, yeah. but this is where I am now in terms of this. I'm not lobbying for global revolution anymore. This is going to have to come from the ground up and hopefully rapidly as other forms of... Um, other forms of more strategic activism go after things like the broad pollution crisis, which is coming from the major nations and stuff like that. Socioeconomic inequality that needs to be addressed as well. I think that is a, a super toxic force that is underlying all the destabilization that we see. And Trump just is an, an aggravator of that. And that is something else that needs to be addressed. But over time, that would be addressed as well through localization simultaneously, but it would take a lot of time. I think a program like this, if it had proper backing, could be launched and set in motion probably in a year, and then it comes down to simply getting people on board. And I think once it is on, once it's made notable out there in the public sphere, it would get a lot of press, and it would mm -hmm. generate rapid interest. And in my, in the, if I ever do make a sequel to my film and reflections, uh, this is what happens. By the way, the the way the film progresses over three three episodes, if you will, is the island is created at the end. They start building technological packages that they send around the world with instructions on how to create their own localized community and reject the globalized forces, the globalization forces, and, and uh, localized community is what I meant to say, reject the globalization forces. And then it evolves slowly where people are transforming the society pocket by pocket in this way with a great deal of drama and tension uh, that I won't go into as far as the narrative. But I've thought about this for a great deal of time. Yeah, I, I love the end of Inner Reflections. Um, and I really encourage everyone to check it out. It's found on pretty much all platforms right now. Um, you can check out Peter's pinned tweet uh, at Zeitgeist Film and check out, you know, how you can watch Inner Reflections. I was just going to ask you about when we can expect part two, but I know <laughs> that's a, this one took a couple of years and uh, you're, you already said that you're going to work on another documentary before that and potentially restart Culture in Decline and also doing the podcast. So you have a lot on your plate, Peter, um, but talk a little bit about Inner <laughs> Reflections and, you know, why it's so different from your other work and how, how people can watch it and support you. So the, the film is out there. It's easy to find. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, the, the interesting thing about the film is it really wasn't supposed to be some multi-year, ex extremely expensive thing. It, it was supposed to be a rather, rather passive concept because I knew it was going to be experimental. But it did take a long time, and it has come off as sort of a, an epic tour de force in many ways. And it is it is a different experience from your traditional filmmaking expectation. And that's the danger that the film walks. So when people watch it, if they're expecting your traditional formulaic narrative where you, you know, you get locked into some kind of suspense and you have your arc and your three parts and all that, this isn't the film uh, for you, even though I encourage people to watch it anyway. I think uh, it's a journey that you have to sit back and sort of allow to happen. And ultimately, I'm not, I don't want to give too much away about it, but apart from the fact that it's in three different timelines and three different genres, it's a series of 32 vignettes and it's organized kind of like you're flipping channels on a television between two different shows. And in the middle of the show is this silent film hallucination section, which was far, by far the most difficult to create. I will say that it, the film, I think, is an excellent artistic representation of what I was going for in terms of how it finds its way as an activist tool is going to be 
interesting to, to see. Uh, in other words, it's not the kind of film that is easily digestible by many people. And I get a lot of criticism for that, but I had to do it this way because this is the vision I had for it. And as the films progress, as I move forward, assuming again, I can, I can do another one. And true, and speaking to your point, Abby, the, the making a documentary is, you know, as you've done beautifully, by the way, it, it's far easier than a feature like with actors, you know, with green right. screen. So it's just a completely different animal. So I can go back to documentary stuff and do it on my head. You know, it's just like mm -hmm. the kind of complexity. Obviously, it's, you know, it comes down to your content and everything else. But as far as the technical stuff, it's just nothing compared to what I went through for Interreflections. So... I want to do a lot of things. Inner reflections hopefully will happen. I won't do it the same way. I have these scripts outlined. I'm hoping to get a better backing for something like that. But that will be a little bit down the road. I've I've shelved that for now because I have to see how the first film performs. I got to get out of tremendous debt. So, <laughs> but yeah, culture and decline stuff like that. I'd love to to bring that back. I've commented on bringing it back. I do intend to on some effect. It might not be the exact same format. It might be a little bit more minimalistic. But yeah, I'm, I'm in my third, my, I was going to say I'm in my third wave, I'm in my second wave, so to speak, of my own activism, because I went away for a while, and I just kind of tried to decide whether I wanted to be involved in any of this anymore, because it's just, it's not a very rewarding thing, and I'm not a career activist, and I have a great criticism of the activist industrial complex, that litany of people that just keep outputting and telling you everything's going to be okay, and we just have to do this, and they, get, they make their best-selling books, and then they, you know, resort back to their penthouse apartments, and they, they're just not really activists. They're, they're entertainers. And I talk about that a great deal in Interreflections as well through many symbolisms. So I didn't, I've never been comfortable in that environment, in this environment for a great, well, excuse me, for a big point of time, for the first half of this work since 2008, um, I didn't make any money off of anything related to activism. I had the separated life. And it wasn't until recently when I did the book deal in 2017 that, you know, all this time I had to go into that. Suddenly I found myself finally having to get, you know, payment for what I was doing. And it's to me, and I know it's different for many people, but to me, it's very um, discordal. It's a great cognitive dissonance in my mind because it just means you're part of the machine still. Now you have to be to a degree. We all get that. But for me and my personality, it, it, it's been hard for me. I, I just, I can't stand it. So I'm making my final wave here over the course of the next few years, I'm going to hit hit everybody with everything I have and then see where it ends up. And, you know, in the meantime, I'll create content that hopefully has resonance. And if it doesn't pan out, I'm not going to torture myself much longer. <laughs> and I'm not diminishing all the activists out there that are here for the long haul. Um, but there's only so much you can do to yourself in this life. And I think empathic people like us, uh, there's a much more pain that's associated with witnessing what's happening in society. And it takes a lot of self-care, a lot of you know work to not let that get to you or drive you insane or drink yourself to death and so on. So this is kind of, you know, I say that in passing because I'm sure there are other activists out there that have just as much frustration. They sit back and they, they just don't see anything sticking just as I've watched. And you, you, know, you, you operate from principle, right? We all have to have stewardship for ourselves, the, the civilization, the planet. And you operate from principle, so you try to do the right thing. And at this stage, my right thing is to try and get as much information out there as possible and as much creative work and academic investigation stuff. I was working with some people from the UN, believe it or not, there's a working group, and they're actually going to take some of the stuff from my book and put it into a peer-reviewed paper that will be published. And apparently, UN Geneva, there are some agents there that are talking about implementing some of the ideas in the fifth wow. chapter of my book. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of these working groups and, you know, there's all sorts of useful things happening in, you know, the sub tiers of UN works. But uh, who knows? Who knows what will stick?
but I'll keep plugging along for now. Well, I I know how much you've been resistant to donations. You weren't accepting them forever through the Zeitgeist movement. And I think that's why people really need to become patrons if they support you and your work and want to find a way to, to help Thanks. you out. Um, so please become a patron to Revolution Now. Please buy the book, The New Human Rights Movement. Can't recommend it enough. It's what Inner Reflections was pretty much based on. Right. And please buy the movie. Rent the movie, buy the movie, share the movie to your friends and family. Peter, you are one of the most brilliant visionaries of our generation. I am absolutely uh, honored to know you, and I really, really appreciate all the time that you spent with us today. I, I can't thank you enough, and I'm looking forward to everything you have coming up next. Thanks, Abby. I'm touched by that, and it's great talking to both of you, and nice to meet you, Robbie. And uh, yeah, hopefully when the, the smoke clears, we can all grab a drink somewhere and, yeah, <laughs> right, when we can breathe inside and outside. Yes. It's been uh, pretty toxic in L.A. lately, so looking forward it to is. that, Peter. Yeah, definitely. Where can uh, people actually go check out Inner Reflections right now and what formats and, and viewing methods are available to people? It's all on uh, interreflectionsmovie.com, interreflectionsmovie.com. The Vimeo link seems to be the most popular as far as a global link. There are some rights restrictions, but... You know, if you want to, all the, it's not on any subscription services like Netflix, at least not yet. We're working on that, but it is on, you know, Amazon and Voodoo and, and about seven or eight iTunes, of course. So if you go to the website, Interreflections Film, you can find it. And as far as my own site, it's peterjoseph.info. And I've got my, all my network sites through that page as well. So if anyone wants to figure out other things that I'm doing. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you. Hello, this is Robbie Martin. You were just listening to an interview with Peter Joseph, the filmmaker behind Zeitgeist and Inner Reflections. If you like what you heard today on Media Roots Radio, if you go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio and donate as little as $5 a month, you get access to one exclusive bonus podcast per month that are for patrons only. And right now, we are in the middle of a multi-part history podcast series about the Freemasonic history of the United States. But the final bonus podcast for this month will be the first ever live stream of me and Abby, the 10th anniversary of Media Roots Radio, which will only be available as a podcast to our patrons. Everybody can watch the stream, however, live on YouTube at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on October 30th, this coming Friday. So we're really excited about that. We hope that you can join us. And it will be broadcast on the Media Roots YouTube channel. Part four of the Freemasonic History of the United States will be coming out in the middle of November but expect a preview clip around Halloween. Thanks again for listening, everybody, and take care.